Welcome back to another episode of Extra Innings, the Phillies podcast by the Philadelphia Inquirer. I'm Matt Breen, and I'm joined today by... Scott Lauber. And I'm Bob Brookover. So guys, there's no baseball to watch right now. Today's opening day. We're recording this on Thursday morning. We should be in Miami today, but we're not. Instead, we're all at our homes. And we had an assignment last night. We watched Game 6 of the 1993 World Series. And as I watched it, I kind of thought this was maybe the most iconic sports night of the 90s in philadelphia right i'm thinking other things that stand out but i think this this night is is probably the biggest night of an entire decade in philadelphia sports it it wasn't a very good decade let's let's put it that way it wasn't but Um, it's still it's still after after an incredible 80s um which were my house cleaning years uh the the 90s were not very good but and the phillies had not been good they had had i think one winning season since they had been to the World Series in 83. That was in 1986. Uh, finished last in a bunch of those times. And, you know, I, I, I would like to say out of nowhere, they be, went to the World Series and won the NLCS. Um, but it wasn't really out of nowhere. It was, it's, a, it's a bit of a myth that nobody gave the Phillies a chance in 1993. In fact, there was a guy named Paul White who I think picked him to win the World Series. He worked for USA, USA Baseball. Today. Yeah, USA Today, Baseball Weekly, um, and he, he, I'm pretty sure he either picked him to go to the World Series or win the World Series, USA Today, Baseball Weekly, not not necessarily him as a, as a whole, picked the Phillies to win their division. The division was in upheaval because the Pirates had sold off a bunch of, uh, a bunch of their, you know, had not sold off, but traded off like Bonilla and Bonds, and they weren't the same team anymore, and gotten rid of, uh, and let Drebeck go. Uh, as a free agent. So it was, it, they weren't the same team and the Phillies were a team that everybody knew offensively was very good. They didn't know if they had enough pitching, but it, it became to answer your question, Matt, it became a, a special season. Yeah. I would agree that it was probably the greatest season of any of the teams of that, of that decade, uh, of that decade. Yes. Certainly the most uh, triumphant night uh, for Philly sports in the nineties. Right. But I mean, you could probably argue 15-14 in the World Series, maybe being triumph, you know, being an iconic game uh, in and of itself. And but yeah, I mean, with the celebration afterwards, and 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 you know, certainly a moment that uh, unlike any that that we had in the '90s here. And it's interesting because people call it an out of nowhere season or whatever. I think it's more of like a pop up. The Phillies have had a few of these. Like the Wiz Kids was kind of a pop up uh, pennant, right? I mean, like they were really good in 1950 and then not good again for a number of years before, uh, after or before. 93 was a little like that. And, you know, in thinking about why that was, and I asked some people um, for a project, for a, a book project I worked on last year that's going to be coming out um, next month. I asked some people from the 93 team, like, why was 93 not sustainable? And people had all kinds of theories, like obviously that you had to strike the following year and um, various things that happened. But in rewatching this game, to me, the biggest thing, was that the Braves moved to the NL East the following year. You know, like I sort of had to train my brain to think, oh, oh, wait, the Braves were in the NL West still in 93. And I look back and um, they won 104 games in 93 and won the NL West. The next 11 years, they won 90 games, 96, 101, 106, 103, 95, 88, 101, 101, 96, and 90. So if you ask why the Phillies never got back to the playoffs again for a while after 93, that's, to me, the biggest reason why. Yeah, well, I mean, you got to remember, though, that the playoffs had expanded uh, they shortly had. after that. And I, I vividly 
uh, being in the manager's office and just having a conversation with the manager after we had gotten done writing. I don't know. You were able to do this back at that time. We all went back down to the clubhouse uh, and the clubhouse was just open forever. It seemed like, and Fergosi was in there talking about how it's never going to be like this again. It's never going to be the same. Cause I think he just kind of knew that he had a bunch of guys who were getting older, breaking down, uh, had career seasons. I mean, Pete Incavilli had career seasons. It, it, it all, and it all worked in terms of, Hey, nobody was, nobody's ego got in the way. And Peter Cavilli had to share time with Jim Eisner or uh, with Mill Thompson. And Jim Eisner had to share time with Wes Chamberlain in the outfield. And Mickey Morandini had to share time with Mariano Duncan. Mm -hmm. And that all worked for that team. But it wasn't going to work again because it, it actually, by the, by the time they got to the World Series, uh, when Incavilia didn't start game one in Toronto, he was he was really upset with Fergosi and really, and his teammates got really mad at him because, you know, they're like, Hey, you know what? This is, this is what we've done all year. If you don't like it too bad, get on board here. Uh, so it, it, it was kind of inevitable from, you know, take the Braves out of the equation that the Phillies, this was going to be a one-year wonder. You said baseball also, weekly earlier that like that brought back so many memories just of, uh, I loved getting that every week i think it came out on wednesdays i would go to 7-eleven or wawa and pick it up and it just the memories of this game like just watching this brought back so many of those old baseball memories of just being a kid like the vet the the outfield the logos on the outfield wall to vet i always loved seeing that on the faraway shot um the even the logo on the on deck circle like i remember every game they changed now it's just a national league logo or an mlb logo but every team's logo would be whoever they were playing was on the visiting on deck circle. And the, those yellow right. foul poles. And I forgot, I just forgot about these at how high they went up and they attached to the roof of the, of the vet. It's just, it was just so much fun watching this game and seeing the vet in it's like prime, like nine, right when they changed the logo in 92 until probably like two, th until like Oh one, like the last years of the vet were a little bit different. They changed it a lot. But that that is like peak vet right there, and uh, just the crowd is just absolutely bonkers. Like the entire yeah. like I was cracking up. Tommy Green's first pitch is a called strike, and the place goes nuts. Like they they as if like the game ended right there. It was I, so uh, I wrote, awesome. I wrote down vet massive and ear splittingly loud, and you know it's funny. Like I went to probably. I grew up an hour north of Philadelphia in New Jersey, and we went to a lot of games at Yankee Stadium. Uh, but we probably went to at least a game a year at the Vet. Um, we used to go you know, for camp days and stuff like that. And, like, it just, it, you know, it was what it was. Like, it was sort of, I don't want to know, I don't want to say the Vet was sort of the norm, but, like, the cookie-cutter stadium and a multi-sports multi stadium, you didn't really think about it. Now, you look at a stadium like that, and you, especially when you saw those overhead shots, it was enormous. I mean, it was massive. Like, how did we watch baseball in a place that huge? And it was it was loud. Like, like you said, Matt. Like, I mean, oh my God! Like on the first pitch, and they're hanging on the. And it wasn't like I mean, yeah, there were lulls in the game, and there were times where like you know the Braves scored and it got quiet. But like that, it sustained its that that crowd sustained its loudness for a large part of that game. And I remember thinking similar thing. 
when I watched, this was a while ago, the, the clincher in 1980, like how loud it was. And it just got like that. It was, it was incredible. I don't know if the sound just didn't have anywhere to go in that circle, but I mean, it was, it was loud. It I was, think it's, it, it was much louder than any of the other uh, venues that are any, any of the venues that are around now, for sure. I think people like, uh, this is just when I, I go back and watch old games, I think the vet it definitely helps because it's around and it keeps the sound. But I, I think fans experience sports differently now than they did in the nineties and the eighties. I, I just think like, culture as, as a whole has kind of changed where it was it meant I mean, sports means a lot to people now i just think it meant a little bit in a different way to people when when life was a little more ba- basic than it is now well also you're you're there at the game like the whole viewing experience is different so exactly maybe you, maybe you take some time right you go get a beer or you go get a hot dog but you're there to watch the game like none of those crowd shots i mean what was absent from those crowd shots cell phones you know all any other kind of device. Now you see people and they're playing on their phone or they're texting their buddy or they're right or, or they're even, taking a video. Even like Ashburn, you know, Ashburn Alley at the height of the Philly sellout streak, that was the place to go for like the the twenty something crowd was to go to Ashburn Alley and be you know be seen and hobnob with your friends in Ashburn Alley and tailgate. It wasn't so much about oh my gosh, this great Phillies era is going on. It, it, it was, but it wasn't all about that. Yeah, I mean, now you're now at that time you're in your seat, and I remember like so when this game was played, I was a senior in high school. I mean, I remember being that age and younger, going to games with my dad, and we wouldn't even get out of our seats to go get concessions. He'd just get them from the vendor who was coming around and have him throw the hot dog at us. I mean, you literally went there, sat down, started to watch the game, and you didn't really get up unless you had to go to the bathroom or the concession stand until you left to leave to go to your car, and that was your viewing experience. So. That probably has something to do with the, the intensity of the crowd, too. It's just that you're in your seat and you're there for the game. And, and can we please talk about the whoop there it is chant? Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. That was the lead. I, see, I, I remember so many people's leads from, from those days. Um, that was the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette had a classic um, – Baseball writer named Paul Meyer, who was uh, yeah, I remember him. He, he he was great. He was funny. He was uh, a curmudgeon of sorts, and his lead was "Whoop, there it is." <laughs> when the yeah. Phillies, when the Phillies how won, would, I mean, how would you it, it was a popular Bob? song at that time. Bob, how would you read someone's lead? And I'm I'm honestly just being curious, like from Pittsburgh in 1993. Because it, it, people would they would get clips. Oh, they, oh they, okay. They, the, people, the, the teams would have clips. That's and, cool. And in the World Series times, they they would have a bunch of clips from all over the country. So it was that that's how you, how you ended up getting it. it. Was it was cool? You look forward to the clips. You love the clips. You'd sit there and read the clips before the game, and that's how you'd find out if you got beat on a story. You know, it, there was all kinds of uh, angst while you were reading them. So it was it was an interesting time. That's cool. So who knows who sang "Whoop"? There it is. So, uh, yeah, and I should know. I, um, well, I looked two, it up. I actually looked it up. Two, there's two. Uh, we the tag team version is the version that right. I think people know. But the Phillies were were rallying around the '95 South version. So oh, both okay. both groups were from Atlanta. I looked because I looked it up last night and just in the archives yeah. to see like what was the origin of it for the Phillies. And here it was the song came out that summer. Tag team. Yep. 
tag team. It went to number two on the Billboard chart. But that is, woot, I don't know what woot, number one. There was. it is with it. Okay, and then woot woot with a T. That is by ninety five South, and that's the one that the Phillies would play in the clubhouse. From what I could read, they would play the, the ninety five South version. So then, and it was like a rallying cry for the New Orleans Saints were singing it in the Superdome that year. Um, some college teams, like it was like I guess just a popular saying in the ninety and for just that short it, time. It, because by it was like December, they said it was out. It, the funny part oh, okay. is, the funny part is, it was out. And the next spring training, I, I was looking at some stories I had written for the '94 spring training special section in the Courier Post, and, and I remember Mariano. Well, in the story, it talks about how Mariano Duncan was—I don't remember this actually—but he was walking through the clubhouse. Hey, man, play that song. Play that song. Uh, so somebody, somebody played the song, and it's like, and they. Didn't play it again the rest of the year, and, and the story and they had a bunch of and they had a bunch of things go wrong in the '94 spring training, and the, the gist of the story was, oh, this isn't so good this time around. <laughs> I remember <laughs> that song was just everywhere. I remember my sister went to the mall and bought a cassette single. Remember cassette singles? Oh yeah, oh, oh, oh yeah. Whoop, there it is. But it was a tag team whoop, there it is. And now I'm finding out that we had the wrong one. We were playing the wrong song. But it's yeah, just amazing so, that the crowd, like, that's what they did. Like, a bit Darren Dalton, big double. Right before well, the, the last yes. strike. The, 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 the biggest place. thing they did that night, though, was it, it, around the seventh inning after Morandini's triple. Was that the seventh? I think it was the sixth or seventh. What, mm-hmm. Whatever inning it was. After his triple to make it 6-1, the tomahawk chop came out. Yes. And- It was like 10 times louder than it had been at any point. Because at that point, the Braves fans had become a little bit jaded. I mean, they had, after years of really being awful, they went to back-to-back World Series, and this team had won 104 games. As they said during the broadcast, uh, McCarver and, and um, Sean McDonough, only two teams previous to that had ever won 104 games and not made it to the World Series. Right. 104 games or more and not made it to the World Series. So, yeah, so, so but the biggest that, that's the thing I remember is that tomahawk shot because it was so it would get loud in Atlanta, but when when the Phillies fans started doing it, it was just like an incredible moment. So the first it went time like whole winning too. Yeah, it did. It did. And oh and it, it went into the night. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm serious. I, I left the ballpark in like two hours later and there were still people outside tomahawk chopping. The first time <laughs> I noticed whoop there it is was after the Dalton double in the third third inning. Um yeah. Were they doing it? I, I didn't notice if they were doing it after every time they scored. Oh, every, every like big moment. Every big moment. And, okay. And literally, right before Bill Picota strikes out, like early in that count, there's a maybe right before that at bat, there's a whoop there. Okay. I thought it was cool that tag teams from Atlanta. I thought that was neat. You know, it was mm-hmm. sort of like they another... both both are. They both, both are. Okay. Okay. Did you, did you guys, just a little aside here, do you, do you remember the song, This Is How We Do It? Yeah. Oh, it yeah. It still gets played. It's, it's, that was the 1995 Phillies team song, <laughs> which to me is still one of the most incredible seasons ever. Because um, they were, at one point, they were, around the All-Star break, they were 17 games over 500 and had a pretty good lead over the Braves in the NL East. They were playing great. Um, by the middle of August, myself and the other writers were singing, this is how we blew it. Because <laughs> they were like two games under and way out of it. Um, yeah. So like this was the era of jock jams, right? 
I'm sure like Whoop There yeah. It Is is probably like the lead jock jam at that time too because it was a summer song and this and that. I don't know what number one was on the Billboard charts that year, but or that summer. But I guess it got as probably high as two. I that was what my research. Or something. Probably something like that, right? Um, no, it was that was the that was Pearl Jam era. No, but it wasn't that Pearl Jam wasn't number one. But that was the grunge movement for yeah. sure. Because uh, actually, the the Phillies, the, the other Phillies, the, the Phillies song they played a lot was Two Princes. Yes. Um, by what, what's the name of the band? Sp- the Spin, Spin Doctors. Doctors. Spin Doctors. Right. Spin Doctors. Two Princes. They they played that as much as they did. Uh, Won't there it is probably maybe even more. There was a Two Princes was their song. The, the, the whole sequence around Dalton's double I thought was cool because right before the double we get this awesome cutaway shot of Deion Sanders in the Braves dugout. And like, there's no, that was great. I'd moment. forgotten who was on that team. And there was like no mention whatsoever of Dion. They just cut to the Braves dugout. There's Dion sitting there with his headband and his hat on. And then we get cut back to the action. Dalton doubles. Whoop. There it is. Crowd's going crazy. And I'm still writing like Dion Sanders down on my pad here. And I'm like, I can't, I, I didn't remember he was there. I mean, yeah, didn't, that was Dion, the Dion. didn't he say something the next day? Oh, I don't I kind of remember, remember that. Why, the, the, the biggest thing I ever or... remember with Dion's baseball career is he, he almost got in a fist fight underneath Veterans Stadium with Kurt Schilling. Him and Kurt Schilling were wow. Kurt, wow. Schilling called him a, glor, a glorified flag football player. <laughs> <laughs> I forget what the spout was all about. But wow, was, <laughs> spout was all about. But they were like really, and Dion had like this bodyguard. He was playing for the Reds at that time, and. Oh, that was also, when he came Dion, back. We went to, we went, to, yes, and we went to ask. Schilling made the glorified fo- flag football player comment. We went over to the Reds clubhouse, informed, formed him what Schilling said. Schilling or Dion gets his bodyguard, and they start walking toward the Phillies clubhouse. You know, and, and Schilling never got out of the Phillies clubhouse. I don't. But it, was, it was an ugly old thing. You know, he was a way better baseball player than I remember, too. I mean, so I look. Oh, terrific. I mean, I looked up what he did that year for the Braves because I was like, oh, Dion's on that team. 276, 321, 452. So he had a 773 OPS, 18 doubles, six triples, six homers, 19 steals, and 95 games. And I'm starting to wonder as I'm watching the game, like, should he be the center fielder? I mean, like Otis Nixon, you know, all right, great. I mean, he stole 40 something bases, but. <coughs> Was Dion a better player than than were they a better team if Dion was in the lineup? I mean, he was a much better baseball player. I think player. the answer the answer is yes, they they were. But for whatever reason, Bobby Cox stuck with Otis Nixon through that series. I mean, Dion was an incredible baseball player. To, to this day, there's nothing. I don't know if there's anything more exciting than watching Dion Sanders hit a triple yeah. because it's like most guys are still getting to second base when Dion's on third. I mean, that's how I, I, I've still never seen anyone get to third base faster. Than him. It's also it was also like mind blowing to me when he comes up to pinch hit in the seventh inning. Sean McDonough says, you know, I guess it's six one Phillies at this point. And Sean McDonough says, well, you know, Dion might join the Atlanta Falcons tomorrow. And this is middle of October. So the NFL has been going on for over a month. Right. And Dion's been a full time, I guess, mostly baseball player during this time. You know, he's a Hall of Fame. He's one, he's one of the greatest cornerbacks we've ever we've ever seen. He's a Hall of Fame football player, and his football season's on hold because he's the Braves' fourth outfielder. It was just it was nuts. So, so I'll, I'll uh, 
I'll give a little tease to a story that is going to run one of these days that I've written about Joe Girardi in the midst of the Joe Girardi uh, story. We start talking about his best friend in baseball was Dante Bichette, who they obviously played around the same time as Dion and Bo Jackson at the height of the, the maybe, probably, I would say, the two greatest two sports stars in the history of sports. Um, and, and Girardi starts telling me about how Bichette also uh, – believed he was a two sports star. I said, Oh yeah. He said, and he said, yeah, that's what I said. I said, what, what two sports you're talking about, Dante? He goes, well, baseball, of course. And, and, foosball. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, I had the same reaction. You two just had him laughing and George. No, 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 you don't understand. This guy was great at foosball. He was nationally ranked. <laughs> it was a pretty funny wow. little story. So how about John Cruck playing with a rip in his pants? You noticed that? <laughs> yes. I uh, did notice the rip and John McCarver. When did he rip the first time? Tim McCarver on made the, a big deal that, about that. Was it the was it the sliding catch or the the slide like an attempted slide? He, he, he dove for a, yeah, he had dove for a ball in the first inning. That when they, they went for a single, I think so. It had to have been because it was only the second inning when they yeah. showed him. I think. Imagine what that yeah, felt had, like diving on that. No. Like once he dove on the Asher turf, I'm thinking, God, that is because when you can see how bad that turf was, especially then. Yeah, Scott Rowland used to de- describe playing the vet on like playing as like concrete. It was, and it, I think at that time, it was in '93, it still had not been replaced and 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 good. So, so g- game six it, doesn't happen if the Phillies don't win game five, and they broke down Dykstra's homer in game five. Yes, and I this was like really, I thought interesting insight in the. Because Lenny Dyker now has become what he is, but I think people forget maybe like how good he was. And uh, he he had a full count, and he knew he was getting a fastball because the Braves had their emergency catcher behind the plate. So either second or third string catcher behind the plate so that he knew they couldn't walk him because then if they walked him, he was going to easily steal second. So he knew he was getting a fastball, and he jumped all over it. And, and Bob, just what was he – like he's very eccentric and all that, but for when it came down to hitting, what kind of mind did he have? The, the, the really, to me, the saddest thing about Lenny Dykstra is he could have really been somebody who contributed to the game as a coach and, or, I mean, he wanted to manage when his back went out. Uh, I've, I remember this to this day, you know, in 97, he, he sort of tried to make a comeback. Uh, from this back issue that he had and kept him out the previous season entirely. I, I'm not sure he had played in two seasons, but whatever. And he invited me and Paul Hagen over to his place he had bought in, I believe it was uh, Seminole, somewhere around there, just outside of Clearwater, this big house. It's a gated community. I'll tell you what, it's a gated community. <laughs> you're going to have to give him my name. So, so we go over there, and the sole purpose of Lenny inviting us over was for him to tell us that he wanted to be – well, he had, he had liked a story that I had written talking to talking about maybe Dexter could be a manager someday. Uh, he, he really liked that idea, and he wanted to talk to us about that. So, you know, we, we chatted about that. And, and in the midst of that story, I talked to John Vukovic, and Vuk said, you know, this guy – he's one of the most brilliant baseball minds, right? He said, he sees, because I see a lot, because I've been around the game a long time, and I see, he said, this guy sees things that I don't see. Uh, and he said, so yeah, if he could 
if he could do it, you know, he would be really good at it. And he obviously didn't have the patience to do it because he, he tried to go manage the Reds minor, low minor league team in one spring training. And it was over in like two days because he realized, Oh my God, these guys get here at eight in the morning. Don't leave till seven at night. <laughs> so, and it was, it was, but it's, to me, it's sad that he wasn't able to keep contributing in that way because he would have been really good at it. I have to give a shout out to Mark Lemke for uh wearing a baseball hat under his helmet when, when yeah. he was batting. That was like you no, no one ever does that and that's how I think we all did it as kids. Love that style. Oh, yeah, I was big I was on like... that. The other the other style note uh the other <laughs> the other style note I had was Tommy Green wearing the starter jacket on the bases. Yes, yes. Um we got to bring that back. That that falls How sick in the, was that jacket though. Oh, it was great. And that falls under the category of like bullpen cars and other stuff that baseball used to have when it was so much, you know, when, that was so cool that they've got to find a way to bring that back. Pitchers have to run the bases with the jacket again. And they would run so, like, the jacket in like the good. middle of the summer. It didn't matter. Right. It was like they always wore the jacket. Oh, yeah. So, so, <laughs> so let me ask you guys, let me ask you this guys this. Who was the star of game six? Um, great question. Uh, Tommy Green, you know he out Maddox. Maddox. Uh, I would, uh, here, Dave Hollins. Yeah, he would. Dave Hollins. I mean, Tommy Green. Hollins would be my really Hollins awesome. would be my third. Hollins would be my third star. Green would be my second star. Green. Would, I mean, even though the Phillies had pulled out that game five to come, you know, to come back to the vet with a lead, which was huge, um, after blowing the three nothing lead in the in the ninth inning. Uh, you know, that was all huge. So then you got more Dini. But to me, that that night belonged to Mickey I mean, Dini. And and, and 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 looking at my coverage, I I felt really good because I did my pregame note on Mickey how how much Mickey Morandini had meant in that series. Mickey and I, I don't remember this, but I'm reading my own story now. It came back to me. Mickey had been benched. He had barely played in the second half of the season. Uh, you know, and and there's a quote from Fergosi. This is the kind of quote you don't get from a manager anymore. You know, why did you stop playing him? He said he buried himself. Yeah, <laughs> but 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 he started three of the six games in that series, and, when, and the biggest hit of the game isn't a hit at all. It's when Maddox, he Greg Maddox, off this. Maddox, it's it, you know Maddox said after the game he didn't know if it affected him or not. It definitely affected. He was so, not Greg. So Maddox I had two night. notes on. Well, actually one note on that. But so so that that happens right, and then they come out to check on Maddox, and we get this weird. Um, Maddox starts to throw uh, to, like, test it, and we get this – the camera, like, gives us this weird overhead shot of the vet. And I was like, no, I want to see his warm-up pitches. Like, I want to see that. Like, that's, this is a big part of this game here. He's – we don't know if he's hurt or not. We, we don't know if it's – you know, if he can continue. And they zoom out, and they give us this big overhead shot. And then a little later on in the game, there's a mound visit, I think uh, Leo Mazzoni comes out to the mound and they cut away from that. And I don't know whether like the cameras were just less invasive in that time, but like, you know, now you see, okay, there's a mound meeting of an innocuous mound meeting in the middle of a game and guys have the glove over their mouth and they're being very paranoid and protective of like what they're saying. And uh, are people going to read their lips? No need to do that back then because they just didn't give us that. Uh, they, they didn't give us those shots. It was it was strange. The, the, you, you did get an update, update though. What was Jim? Was Jim, Jim uh, Sean McDonough or Jim Gray? Jim no, Gray. No, Jim Jim Gray. Thank you. Jim Gray gave an update later. But did you notice in the update? 
Gary Maddox. Update, he calls he calls yeah. him Gary Maddox, and <laughs> and it, and it, it was an update that made made it pretty clear that he was yeah. banged up pretty good. I think they won the show off the uh, bu- the Bud Blimp that was over the vest. They, so they just had to keep showing that. They shot. did. They did. It was unbelievable. I was like, no, 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 that no, don't cut away from that. Like we, you need to see him throw those. And I don't. It was just a difference in the way I guess TV covered games back then. But it was way less in your face. You know, just now we're like up the. You know, we're like watching the mound visit as it's happening and we can read their lips if they're not covering their mouth and i was like oh well now maybe i don't blame players so much for doing that you know i always think well they're just being overly paranoid but we need to bring blimps back yeah that blimp was going to be that blimp was going to be at every world series game right but how did they do that with skydome i guess they just showed the (laughs) overhead view of the the dome they still do that great shots of the roof they show the over they still do it today. Although the Sky Dome did open, true, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't open it that year. But it did, unlike unlike the Mon- the Olympic yeah. Stadium, <laughs> the, roof, the roof didn't break there. It was the first time I went to Sky Dome. It was a and was that World Series the first time I was ever there. I was that place was amazing to me. You know, it's like wow, there's a hotel in the in the outfield. You know, you got these hotel rooms. It was state of the art, right? There was a McDonald's. There was a world famous McDonald's, and and believe me, I went to the McDonald's because the the box lunches were not very good. Back I also noticed. I also so, noticed. So after after Maddox gets hit with the with the comebacker, uh, you know they go to the Braves dugout, and they're obviously very concerned right away. And then he walks. He walks the next guy. Did he walk Crock or he walks Hollins? Four pitches. His next six and, pitches and are balls. Cox goes over to sit down next to Leo Mazzoni, and there's some kid. I don't know if it was a ball boy or a bat boy or whatever. Some kid <laughs> sitting <laughs> next to Leo Mazzoni, and Cox just disgustedly kicks the kid right out of the seat. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, that is so funny. That is so funny." Well, that's the, that's the funny part for me as I'm as I'm marching. I'm like seeing people in the. In, in the dugouts that like I remember from those days and had for, completely forgotten about, including he was a visiting clubhouse guy, a kid named Terry McEnany. Um, he, he later moved to Chicago. I haven't, you know, I saw him at an Eagles bears game in maybe the, the early 2000 or the middle, mid two thousands, but that was, but his father was a uh, legendary high school football coach at Pennsauken high school, Vince McEnany. Um, and I saw him on the band. Well, I said, wow, I haven't thought about that guy in a long time. How about the uh, the air horn guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, if it's a big game with the vet, there's got to be an air horn. Yeah. Like, imagine sitting next to the guy that brought the air horn. <laughs> that's that's an unfortunate day. Yeah, yeah. That's that's like getting a 400 pound guy in, in your seat. Yeah, like every big it. moment, like Mickey Morandini is great catching like the second inning. All you hear is the air horn blowing off right before the last out the air horns going off it's awesome um the other note on morandini so ridiculous timing by the cbs crew so right before he hits the triple they just have this random shot of his mom yeah (laughs) and she goes oh mickey's up like you could hear her say it she goes oh mickey's like like they almost like uh, you have to have some reaction, Mrs. Morandini. And then he hits the triple, and they get right back to her, and now she's going crazy, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, like, talk about just incredible timing to just decide to put a shot of his mom up right at that moment. And, and w- one of the other amazing things about 
how the game ended is Mitch Williams has a one, two, three, ninth inning. It wasn't, there were some, it, it was maybe the most eventful one, two, three inning you'll ever see because yeah. he had one pitch that he went three oh, he went three oh on, he went three oh on a batter and on the second batter and he threw a pitch that almost hit the guy in the ankles. Um, you know, so it was, it was as unclean as a one, two, three inning could possibly be, but it was Mitch Williams. And for him to have a one, two, three inning, it was, it was a huge sigh of relief for, for all involved. I love when they show right before the, uh, the last pitch, his, his glove, they show as it brings up to his face and it says no fear on the glove, which is that. Oh, I didn't notice that. Remember that brand in the nineties? No fear. Yeah. And it's like, what? Like, that's on his glove. Like, it, it, there are so many things in this telecast that are just, like, so 90s. So 90s. And, like, uh, Mitch Williams is wearing no fear on his glove. It's just it's so funny. How about the uh, the ninth inning? <laughs> talk about 90s. The ninth inning Letterman plug. Uh, his yes. guests that night yes. were Kirstie Alley and Rick Ocasek. And I was thinking 93, Kirstie Alley. So, Cheryl on in 93. I think it's getting close to the end of its run. That's like, I guess, a big get for Letterman that night. You know, Kirstie Alley, she's a star then. Um, yeah. But I was like, could there have been the, the cars? Like, are, the cars are probably still yeah, pretty could, big. Could at there that have point? been like uh, two more 90s guests, though, than Kirstie Alley and Rick Ocasek on Letterman that night? Preempted by the World Series. Preempted by the, yeah. I also noticed in the ninth inning, we had a couple of shots of Schilling in the dugout. He was standing and clapping, no towel in sight. Nope. That that was later, right? That was during the World Series. Yes. They were, him, him and Mitch well, were still friends at that point. At one point, you come on, Mitch. Say, yep. come on, Mitch. Exactly. Um, I thought that was very, like, good timing, though, on the, on the Schilling shot. But, you know, it's 27 years later, and that, uh, that's all water on it. Uh, never mind. Never <laughs> and mind. Schilling... They still who does still Mitch like was wearing a different starter jacket. So there were two starter jackets in the Phillies dugout. Yeah, two different styles. I noticed. And I just and Fergosi no. never <laughs> took his, his off. I like his that and jacket. He, he, he wore he wore his in like it was 108 degrees in August, and he still wore <laughs> yeah. that jacket. It's just great. Uh, it wouldn't have been a big game, right, without Cowboy Joe West playing a huge role. Huge yeah, role. What, what was that? Was a, that was a really odd thing that they went back to. The, the which I covered the game. They went the back Pat to the nineteen ninety game. game when, 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 when no, when Doc, yeah, Pat Holmes and Doc Gooden charged him out after getting hit by Pat Holmes and Dalton tackled him, and then Joe West tackles Dennis Cook. But that was like, yeah, there were incidents with Joe West, but that one was long gone, and Dennis Cook was long gone by then. That was really a weird. I yeah, they liked that up in the first inning. Too. They're like, we'll get back to that later. Uh, they had obviously that was a big thing that they had decided in their meetings. We're gonna. Talk about this Joe West thing yeah. with Philadelphia. If we had instant replay, uh, Hollins would have been safe, right, in the uh, seventh inning. Yeah. And, but yeah. talking about the telecast, that was pretty solid. They had, like, three different angles yeah. on that play. Yeah. For 1993 camera work, I, I was impressed. I, we've been ripping the other stuff, but that was – that was impressive camera work. And then in the, in the bottom of the eighth where, where West calls out Dykstra without asking for the appeal. So I wrote in my notebook, yeah. uh, Cowboy Joe wants to go home. And the, the strike zone was all over the place. Was, it was crazy. <laughs> it, it was. It was not a. It was not a great. The, one of the amazing things about this whole thing is like I. One of the things I probably morbidly look at, but you just you just do it out. It comes to your mind is, okay. That oh my gosh, that guy's not still with us. That guy's not still with us. And you know, Joe West isn't not only still yep. with us. He's still yep. umpiring, and that's. And he was pretty. He was pretty deep into his career. It's amazing. Point. 
And, and he's still on. Were you as shocked as I was, Bob, that uh, Hollins didn't get tossed over that with his temper and how he could go nuts on people that he didn't just go ballistic? Yeah, you know, Hollins didn't get thrown out a lot and he didn't argue a lot either. So, I mean, and, you know, you have to know that this is yeah. a bigger game as, as an umpire that you can't. So and 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 I think if you know if Hollins had been a guy who got thrown out a lot, he had a temper, but he didn't he didn't gear that temper toward umpires. Do you so have a Do you have a good Dave Holland story, Bob, from covering him? Do so I have a good Dave Holland story? Uh, I have a lot of good Dave Holland stories. One of them was told in Sports Illustrated years ago about how he let the writers at the urging of his teammates weigh his head <laughs> one time. Uh, head. His, his nickname was Head. <laughs> head and they because he had such a huge cranium and he actually let the writers which is amazing because he he wasn't the easiest guy to deal with but he let the writers weigh his head uh that's that's certainly a good one there was a night in san diego jason stark was on uh filling in for somebody that night and something had happened with hollands um and he like you could just see he was fuming after the game. They'd lost the game and he, he uh, was not very approachable. And finally Jason went up to him and he said, Hey, can we talk to you about this? And he was like, <laughs> yeah. And, and he answered the questions. And, but the, the, there was, my favorite Dave Tom story of all time is sitting in Clearwater. I don't know what year, what year it was, 94, 95. And he, the, the Clearwater was kind of a horseshoe, the clubhouse, and he was in the middle of the horseshoe. And to the right was Tommy Green, who was entertaining a bunch of questions from reporters. On the left was Tyler Green, entertaining a bunch of reporters. And they both, you know, like to talk. And, and Hollins is just sitting in the middle of the clubhouse by himself. It's only those three in there and reporters. And I, I go over and I talk to start, like, to, I wanted to ask Hollins something while everybody else is. And he's got like one of those things they used to, they might still have him, but he was pounding his glove oh, yeah. like with this yeah, yeah. thing, breaking his glove in. And he just kept pounding it and pounding and pounding. And he goes, he, he used a, a curse word and said, bleeping great, bleeping <laughs> greens and bleeping stereo. <laughs> <laughs> I just started laughing. And he said, even, even Dave Holmes. So uh, I get along with him really well now. He's a Philly scout and, and all that. But I met him back in 2005. I was uh, covering uh, the Mets double-A team in Binghamton, New York. I was the, a writer there. And he was the hitting coach. So I spent, you know, he was, I knew what his reputation was and uh, I'd heard all this, a lot of stories and he was as intense as, as a hitting coach, as you would expect if, if you just had heard the legend of Dave Hollins, you know, he didn't say much. He just kind of walked around like, you know, sort of super intense and didn't smile. And so I went like half, halfway through the season, basically terrified of the guy. And then the Mets call up Lastings Millage, who was their top prospect. They call him up to Double A, and his first game in Double A, he goes like 0 for four with four strikeouts against Cole Hamels, who was pitching for Reading. Um, so I write this Lastings Millage story. It was the story of the day. The prospect gets called up, and you know he had a tough first game, and blah blah blah. And I wrote about what he did, and didn't really rip him or anything. It was one game, but I pointed out how tough a night it was for this guy who we'd heard so much about. Well, then the next game he. Uh, 
he goes off and he has like three hits or something like that. So I write about like, all right, you know, game two is a lot better. So Hollins comes up to me the next day is the first time in like three months that we've, we've had an interaction. And he says, I just wanted to let you know, he says, you did a really good job yesterday. He's like, you know, you, you ripped him the first day, but you, you gave him credit yesterday. And I respect that. And, and I was like, oh, okay. You know, and like, <laughs> from then on, like we, we were fine. It was like the ice was broken. Like I, he'd, he'd given me the acknowledgement that, that I, you know, I didn't ask for, but it was nice to hear. And then off we, off we went and we've had a good relationship, but it was like the guy walked around and it was scary. It was like, this guy could snap at any minute. And you didn't. I, I have to tell one. I have to tell one more Dave Hall story because it's my maybe even favorite, more favorite than the other one. But I'll tell it quick. We're at the winter meetings now. Dave Holmes is working for the Phillies, and he's he's um he's he's sitting he's sitting and partying. We start talking about our families, and he says, "Because I, I have a good relationship with him," and he starts talking about his 15 year old daughter is dating a guy who doesn't pull his pants all the way up, like wears the style <laughs> with his pants down. <laughs> and first of all, I'm thinking, oh, my God, could you, be, could you even imagine being the guy who brings, you know, comes nice. home with Dave Holmes' daughter? <laughs> how, how frightening that must be. And so he's telling me the story, and he goes, and I just looked at him, and I said, nice. pull the pants up. <laughs> Anyway, we, anyway, we did. We we missed should out we, on so many wrap little up? things here, like the uh, the Delaware Orchestra director who had his baton yeah. stolen was awesome. <laughs> the yeah. fan just reached over from the 500 <laughs> level, swipes it. Awesome. Um, I, I also I have to say that I loved in the at the end of the Philly season when you could start seeing the Eagles uh, markings on the turf and the vet was always like you just thought right. that was so neat as a kid. Um, and really, I just thought this was, it was just fun. It was just a fun game. So much John, stuff to John, do. John Smoltz warming up in the bullpen in the eighth inning, and they said, oh, he's never pitched in relief in the major leagues. <laughs> foreshadowing. And I thought, foreshadowing. Yep. Exactly. That's the word I wrote down. Um, Great. The, That's funny. The, 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 last of, the last of the football yeah. baseball things, I think, are over now yeah. because the, the, the Raiders moving to Las Vegas. And then just we to close this out, I, I, I looked again. into uh, – Bob was working at the Carrier Post at the time in Jersey, and, Bob, you, you previewed the, the World Series, which we know what happened there, but here's the headline. Listen to me. The Phillies will win the series by Bob Brookover, 1993 Carrier Post. And then after that series, <laughs> Joe Carter was on uh, Arsenio Hall, and Arsenio Hall asked him if there's anything he wants to say to Philadelphia. Joe Carter said, Whoop, there it goes. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, Whoop, there we go. Thanks for listening. You know, maybe we'll do this again. I thought it was, it was pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs>